Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. My name is Amber Cavanaugh, also known as the West Coast Medium. I live in Canada on Vancouver Island and have an awesome family, thankfully, that helped me get through everything that's happened in the last 16 months. I was at sort of the top of my game as a human <laughs> a couple of years ago, even during COVID. I run most of my business and stuff online. And so I was living the life. We have a beautiful home, kids, husband. And in 2021, on December 22nd, we had a great day right before Christmas. We did gingerbread houses with our kids and foster kids that we used to have. And it was a full day and wonderful. And at night, once we were all done, we were sitting on the couch, me, my husband, and my kids. And my whole life, I knew I was different. From my earliest memory, I knew I didn't experience the world the way the average person did. I think I was maybe four when I realized that other people didn't see the same things I saw. I thought adults were just rude and ignored some people. Now, looking back, I know that they didn't ignore them. They couldn't see them. So I started sort of having, I could always see dead people. I didn't realize they were dead until I was much older. But I also would have psychic dreams or visions. And when I was, I think, seven or eight, I woke up in the morning and I didn't want to go to school. And my mom's like, yes, you have to go to school. Like my parents both worked full time. And I'm like, I'm not gonna go to school because there is gonna be a kid that gets hurt really bad and there's gonna be a lot of blood and I don't wanna go. And she made me go. She had her reasons, she's explained them to me since, but essentially I went and on the playground at lunch, I near the monkey bars and a kid was on the monkey bars and he fell and hit his face and landed on his arm and his arm bone came out like through the skin. I don't know what that's called, but anyways. So there was a lot of blood, it was really scary. And that continued to happen all through my childhood. I would dream of a plane crash or an animal attack and it would happen within a couple of days. And so not super fun to be a kid like that. And I went through my teens, early twenties, trying to just block it out. I just wanted to be normal. I didn't want to see dead people. I didn't want to know what happens to people, nothing. And I managed to throughout teens and early twenties. And 
And then I had my kids and around 35, I decided I'm not gonna keep denying it. And so I, my husband actually helped. I woke up in the morning because he was getting ready for work. It was like 5.30 in the morning. And there was a little girl spirit in my bedroom. And usually I ignored them because I could hear them and kind of see them, but I didn't know how to talk to them. And so the little kid was making like a pouting noise, like a pay attention to me noise. And my husband was in the dark trying to put clothes on. And he's like, said one of our kids' names and said, go back to bed. And I like woke, like super woke up. I'm like, did you hear that? And he's like, yeah, why is one of the kids up at five in the morning? I'm like, that wasn't one of the kids. And he turned on his little flashlight and he's like, what do you mean? And he's like scanning the whole room. And it was a little girl that needed me to talk to her parents because she had died from meningitis. And it was the anniversary of when she got sick that day and she wanted to make sure her parents were okay. And from that moment on, when I accepted my gifts, it just took off. And that was December, 2015. I started my company, well, not really a company, me, uh, in February of 2016 and very quickly started being booked like way far in advance. Before that, I was a social worker. I worked in mental health and addictions and I loved it. And it took a year for me to quit mental health and addictions. I went to casual and I have been doing that, being a psychic medium for, I don't know now, math is hard because I had a stroke. But anyway, since 2017 till now or 16. And so I had started doing before COVID live events. I once live videos became a thing, I do them all the time. I did a little bit of YouTube, but I, I can't edit or anything like that. But so I was like rocking it. I was, I had this amazing life and these amazing gifts. And I'm one of the strongest empaths in the world. So it was just so easy for me. And so I was finally feeling super successful and feeling like I was living my purpose, even during COVID, because then I started doing it online and it was so much easier. I didn't have to travel for live events. I could just do them online. And so we moved house to like our dream house. My kids were super happy and my husband still worked and still does on the road. But it was definitely a charmed life, I think. And I'm one of the strongest psychics, but somehow I didn't know that I was gonna have massive stroke and almost die. I did start that Christmas because it was gonna be my first Christmas dinner post COVID and I was so excited, but I started making freezer meals and I'm like, what am I doing? Like I need the freezer space for all the baked goods. But I started making, I made six weeks worth of freezer meals and I had no idea why. The kids and I both felt like uncomfortable the three weeks leading up to Christmas like we should be excited because we haven't had a wonderful Christmas with all our family since 2019 and but we weren't that excited and now I know why so this brings us to yeah December 22nd of 2021 I was 40 at the top of my game loving life coming out of COVID kind of and being able to celebrate Christmas we spent the whole day making gingerbread houses and just having family time. And that night we were sitting on the couch watching a Christmas movie and 
all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I did tend to get headaches, like tension headaches, because I've had jaw surgery and I get sinus stuff. But all of a sudden, sitting on the couch, I had this weird sensation and then a super bad headache, like like it couldn't open my eyes type of headache. And I'm like, you know what, you guys, I don't really feel well. And I, I was going to be cooking Christmas dinner for like 30 people on the 24th. And I'm like, I'm going to go to bed. And so I went to bed. It was only maybe nine o'clock. And around 10 or 1030, I texted my husband from the bedroom because they were still watching the movie. And I said, you know, I have such a bad headache. I can't even see straight. Can you bring me a Tylenol and an Advil? And he did. I took them. And I thought then I fell asleep. I think I fell into unconsciousness. The headache was my carotid dissecting on my left side. And when you hear carotid dissects, it actually, I guess, is painful and causes a super bad headache. And so I fell asleep or went into unconsciousness. I don't know what. And then my family did the normal stuff, went to bed, stuff like that. And I didn't wake up until I think about 4.30 or 4.40 in the morning. And I woke up thinking, I thought I was dreaming and I'd had weird dreams my whole life. And I was like, I used to have spider dreams that they're like crawling on me and I can't get up. And so I woke up and I'm like, I must be dreaming or like sleep paralysis. I don't understand what's going on. And my bed is really high up. And so the stroke was on the left side. So my right side was affected. And so it just so happened, I was able to kind of push myself up, not realizing what was going on, push myself up to get it up. Because I'm like, if I'm dreaming, I need to just get to the bathroom, which is right across from my bed. So I can kind of wake up. And my husband wasn't in bed because he'd fallen asleep on the couch. And so I tried to stand up not realizing I was completely paralyzed on my right side. And so I stood up, kind of, and when I put weight on my legs, my right side just gave out. The neurologist said I didn't even have a shadow of movement on my right side. So essentially what had happened between when I went to bed and that when I woke up, my carotid had dissected. Although the doctors disagree somewhat because one, it was there when I... It was dissected when I went to the first hospital. By the time I had another MRI at the next hospital, it was already healing. And so they don't know how or why that happened because it takes usually a little bit to heal. But I crumbled to the ground and I still didn't know what was going on. I didn't even think stroke. So it had dissected and I had had a stroke. And it ended up being a completed stroke. So I had an MCA ischemic stroke and it was my MCA too. And if you catch a stroke early, you can stop it and stop the deficits from happening or reverse them. But mine, because I didn't wake up, went all the way through my MCA too and it was complete. So it all was dead. And because I hadn't woken up, it caused a secondary frontal lobe stroke. So essentially, I'm missing two thirds of the left side of my brain now. So I fell to the ground and I didn't understand what was happening. And I, I still thought I was dreaming and I didn't realize like your brain doesn't tell you you're paralyzed. I just didn't understand why I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. And 
So I'm like, I just need to get to the couch. I need to get to the living room to get my husband because I also couldn't talk. I couldn't scream. I couldn't make a noise. And so I tried to army pull myself across the floor and I couldn't, but there was a wall right there. And I don't know how long I was trying to crawl. It seemed a long time, but it probably was only a couple of minutes. And I banged like five times super hard on the wall. And my husband had actually been sort of startled when I fell out of bed, but when he didn't hear anything else, he went back to sleep. And so he came in and at the same time, I woke up my mom because they live in our basement suite. And so she was like, what is that? And then came up just after him and he came in the room and he tried to pick me up. And he's like, what are you doing on the floor? And he tried to lift me under my arm and it's very hard to lift dead weight. And he's like, what is going on? So he put me down, turned on the light, walked around, looked at my face. And he said, I think you're having an effing stroke. I'm like, thanks. That's not nice to say when somebody's so panicked, but I had all the classic signs. My face was drooping, my right side was paralyzed. And so he did the things you're supposed to do, lift your arms, smile, talk, that sort of stuff. I couldn't do any of it. And I thought I was talking because my brain didn't tell me I wasn't, but I actually could only say my sister's name, which is Michelle, and the F word, and that's it. And then I could make weird little grunting noises. And my mom came up, of course I'm in naked, because why not? So they got me dressed, the ambulance came, and the ambulance guys said, oh, I don't think it's a stroke. And Mike's like, yes, it is. Like, this is a classic stroke. They didn't take me seriously. I think we live in a really nice neighborhood and they treated me like I was a drunk housewife. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I've not taken birth control, anything like that. And so they didn't hurry, unfortunately, but also fortunately, because it was a completed stroke. And they got me in the ambulance and halfway to the hospital, the one paramedic that was next to me looked at me and I was so scared and I couldn't talk. And I think the drooping kind of got worse. And he said, oh my gosh, I think she is having a stroke. And he said it to the guy up front. They still didn't put the lights on, still didn't speed. They didn't call the hospital and call a stroke code, which I now know they're supposed to because I had been taken after the stroke. I had a few mini strokes and they call a stroke code as soon as they think it might be a stroke. So I got to the hospital. And I was still completely conscious and they bring me into triage and they were talking and chatting and laughing, all the paramedics, not looking at me, not anything. And there was a nurse facing a different way, checking in patients to the ER and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, what are you guys doing? She's clearly having a stroke. What are you doing? And he picked up the phone and called a stroke code and everything from there on went super super fast i was in the ct within a couple minutes as i was in ct my husband came they saw the carotid dissection they saw the massive stroke and the next sort of parts i know because people have told me but i was in and out of consciousness i know i, I was very scared at some point my sister came and I could hear people talking about me but I I was in my body still but it was very 
I don't know. I was kind of disconnected a little bit. And so I could hear them saying things about what they can do, what they can't do. It might just be permanent. It's pretty, but they decided to give me TPA, which is clot busting medication that works 50% of the time, also has a very, very high instant death rate. And so they bring a crash card in because people can bleed out because it's such a strong anticoagulant or blood clot thing. And my husband had to sign a release and they put the TPA in and they give it to you with Benadryl. And as it's going in and starting to work, I start having an allergic reaction to the Benadryl. And my sister was next to me and she's like, what is happening to her? And I started getting hives, like everything started swelling up my neck, up my face. And so they had to take that out. It was very hectic. It was touch and go. And with that medication, you usually see improvement very quickly. And they didn't. Nothing came back. I didn't start moving. I had no reaction to pain stimulus. I couldn't hold up my arm. It was completely paralyzed. My sister said I would like touch myself over and over again, trying to figure it out. And because it didn't work, there's only one other option, which is brain surgery. And they didn't do it at the hospital in my town, so they needed to life flight me. But there was a storm coming and the helicopter didn't want to come. And the nurse, the charge nurse, who was amazing, got on the phone and started screaming, saying, because my kids had come at that point because the doctor and nurses said that they need to come and say goodbye because more than likely I would not make it to the next hospital. And so I could hear her screaming, I'm not going to watch these kids watch their mom die on Christmas. You are going to come. It's like a 15-minute helicopter ride. So you need to come. And finally, they agreed. And the helicopter comes. And at this point, I was barely conscious. I do remember people saying goodbyes. A few of them, I remember my kids saying goodbye. I remember a couple of my family members. At this point, people had been waking up. And so my family was calling my other sisters and other family members. And so they were coming to say goodbye again because I wasn't probably going to make it. And they were very clear that I was probably not going to make it because the damage was so extensive. The MCA2 feeds a huge part of your brain that controls so many things in your body. And so they all said goodbye. They strap you into all of these things for the life flight because you can't move and stuff like that. And it was a beautiful day. All of a sudden, the sun was beautiful. It was early in the morning still, maybe nine o'clock. And I do remember being pushed towards the helicopter, going in the helicopter. And my family standing, there was a fence and standing at the fence. And my husband was allowed to come in, in the life flight. There normally nobody's allowed, but again, they thought I was gonna die before I got there. And so they didn't want me to die alone. So he came and everybody else had to go home and get ready to come up because it was like an hour and a half to two hour drive to that hospital. And so we got in the helicopter, they take off. And when we got up to a certain height, the sun came in the window and hit my face. And as soon as it hit my face, my husband was trying to block it 
because I started getting a fever, which can happen when your brain is dying and when there's so much swelling. And so he thought I was just hot, but it wasn't. It's a process of dying. And he tried to cover my face and I didn't want him to because as soon as the sun hit my face, that was it. I was on the other side. My body was still clinging to life and I could see it. I could see my husband. I could see my body, but I didn't have a lot of attachment to my body. And I all of a sudden could see all of my family in their cars, packing, panicking, all of that sort of stuff. But again, it didn't make me sad. It didn't make me feel like I was disappointing anybody. I just was fully immersed in being on the other side. It was like I closed my eyes and opened them and I was in this beautiful garden. The grass and the water was like nothing I've ever felt in my entire life. I think I wasted more time feeling my feet in the grass than actually making this decision to come back. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was there to make a decision and nobody was going to make it for me. So I think my experience was a little different than a lot of people's because I didn't feel super pushed either way. And so in amongst getting distracted, I would stand in the grass with my feet in the grass, stand, there was like a little creek and everything kind of glowed with essentially the light of God. As a little aside, right before the stroke, I think on the 20th of December, I had ordered actually this necklace because I was so drawn to the color. It's like a golden rainbow. And this is the closest I've found to the color of everything on the other side. There's just love that radiates from everything. And I wasn't alone either. My guides, who I had gotten to know very well since I accepted my gifts, were there, they were sitting on a bench that I kind of would sit with them for a bit and then get up and walk around. Very strangely, I guess, for some people, my husband was there and my kids were there. I didn't talk to them. But again, my belief, even before the stroke, was that our higher selves are always on the other side. They're always there, connected to us, but also connected to all the other lives we're living. I saw a couple of my animals that have passed. And actually, I saw one that hadn't passed. But unbeknownst to me, she would pass before I got out of the hospital. She needed to be put down, I think, a week after I had the stroke because she was almost 18 years old. And yeah, it was the end of her life. And so she was there. A chihuahua I used to have was there. My mother-in-law who passed away in 2011. And then to the side, kind of, there was a huge group of people, dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, I don't think I know them. But then I kind of looked and concentrated and it was all of my other lives there to support me. Again, we're all kind of one, so we can look separate, but we're not actually separate. And so my guides were super helpful and they said, I need to make a decision whether or not I want to go back to the physical world or stay on the other side. And I was 
very aware that this beautiful garden, although part of the other side, is kind of like an area where you can go when you're still human or attached to a human body. And I knew that if I died, I would go to a different place, but I wouldn't change the garden for anything. The other thing that's kind of interesting in a human way is I looked like the best version of me. I was 40 at the time, but I looked 25. I was wearing a beautiful white eyelet dress. I had no wrinkles and I had no flaws, no weight, like heaviness to me. And I had no pain, even though my physical body at this time was still in the helicopter. I was clinging to life. They were trying to keep me alive to get me to the next hospital to have brain surgery. And looking at myself, I was my 25-year-old self, but better. I didn't look like I'd ever, ever had kids and I've had two, no stretch marks or wrinkles or anything like that. But my guides helped to show me what was going to happen with either choice. And once I got there, I knew everything. I understood everything. Every choice I had ever made in my life made sense. Everything that I had ever regretted as a human or things that I had done to hurt people made sense. There was no question. There's just an all-knowing that your life was planned to learn. You're doing it right. There's no judgment. There was not one moment where I felt like any decision ever that I should regret. And so having that knowledge and having the ability to take away that human amnesia that we're born with in order to survive here made the decision so much easier because I could kind of remove myself a little bit. And they showed me what my kid's life and my husband's life would look like if I didn't go back. And I still didn't feel sad because I knew innately that they would have chosen and planned that as well. They showed me what I would do if I did go back. I would write books and I would speak to very important people about the gift that we're giving or given to learn. And they showed me that 18 months after the stroke, I would be able to learn a lifetime's worth of patience to prepare me for what was coming. But they also told me that 18 months, especially the first six or eight, would be the hardest time I have ever lived. And I have not had an easy life at all, full stop. I've had a really difficult life. And, but again, you're kind of removed from that. Okay, yeah, it's going to be horrible, but... Like everything feels so wonderful here. I can handle that. I didn't really realize what it would feel like to be completely paralyzed and not be able to talk. At the time my body was paralyzed and I was not verbal. I wouldn't be able to eat or drink or go to the bathroom, but I still didn't feel like I had to do something one way or another. They really let me just sort of look at all options and try to figure out what would be the most comfortable for me. There was a bit of a guiding energy of God. I didn't see God. I know a lot of people think God's an old white man. <laughs> He's definitely not. 
God is more of an energy. And something else that was interesting was that there were no words said. Not one word was said the entire time, verbally or physically. Everything was telepathic. You just knew as soon as you were there that need to only hear things was gone. And so I don't know. I don't think I can describe enough how wonderful and loving and amazing it was when I was there. Throughout all of that, I was able to keep tabs on my family. I could see them bargaining with God. If you let her live, I will, and they would make tons of promises. My kids were devastated. Everybody was in shock. I looked like I was dying because I was. And I could see them all trying to get ready, trying to get to the next hospital, not knowing what was happening. And obviously my husband wasn't able to text because he was completely in shock and watching me die. And all of that didn't make me sad. I didn't think, oh, wow, I have to go back because they can't do it without me. It was like looking at my life, but as a lesson rather than something that I have to participate in. And it felt like I was there 50 years. I know I wasn't. It was minutes. It was in the helicopter until I landed, got in the next hospital, and then I had a grand mal seizure because of the my brain swelling. And my guide said, if you are going to die, like if that's the choice you make, you're going to have this seizure and they're going to try to resuscitate you, get you back. You, you'll go back and forth a little bit and then you are going to actually die at 12.22 on December 23rd. And so that was my physical time frame. Again, I was still alive. I just wasn't attached at all to my body. I was on the other side. And so that time... I could see it all happening and any moment I could look and because I could see and feel everything, I could make the decision while also participating in watching over my family. And when I finally made the decision that I'm going to come back again, nobody pressured me. They just showed me my past, present and future with either choice. I decided to come back and in the instant I made the decision, I was out of the garden. And that was it. And I'm like, what? But I didn't go back to my body. I went to this beautiful, I want to say a light-filled waiting room, but it wasn't a waiting room. It was just this light-filled, all-encompassing area where then I could just watch me. I could kind of see my family still, but my, my soul was back connected with my body and I got to make the decision whether or not I wanted to be in my body with the seizure because they can be really painful. And I didn't want to. So I got to stand and watch. I could see my husband. And when the seizure happened, I was in the hospital. I'd gone in the helicopter. They got me out, brought me in the hospital. And there was a nurse in the room and my husband. And the nurse was fairly new. and. I started seizing and grand mal seizures look really scary and she panicked and my husband panicked and he ran out 
and said, we need help in here or something like that. And I'm seizing and it took a long time for it, it to stop. And so I watched that happen. And as soon as the seizing stopped, your body goes into like almost like a comatose state. You fall asleep really deeply. And that's when I joined back to my body. I was in the light filled rating room and then I wasn't and I was fully in my body. And then my memories kind of stopped. Everything up to that point was so clear, even though the beginning kind of wasn't. I was in and out of consciousness. But like from when I got in the helicopter until the seizure, you know, I wasn't with like my husband said, I, I wasn't opening my eyes like I was unconscious. But all of that is so clear to me, everybody talking, that sort of stuff. And then I was in my body and it that was it. It was kind of blackness and pain, I think. And what happened after that, I only know because people have told me, I don't remember it. I had the seizure and my brain was swelling so rapidly and having the TPA, the clotting stuff, was doing a number on my body. They gave me an, another MRI and the upside of medication they gave me in, in Nanaimo in the first hospital it stopped the frontal lobe stroke from continuing. So that's good, I guess, but it did nothing to the main stroke. And so it then was a waiting game. The doctor came in and said, you know, we brought her here for brain surgery, but after seeing the MRI, the brain surgery is not gonna help her. The damage is too extensive. We could maybe go in and take the blood clot from the small stroke, but there's a huge chance, like 70 plus percent chance that the doing that will cause a stroke on the other side of her brain and she'll die anyways. And Mike's like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, do I do the surgery? And my husband doesn't know a lot about medical stuff. He had no idea. And so he said to the neurologist because he'd been a neurologist for over 25 years, I think he said, if that was your wife, what would you do if you had young kids and that was your wife? Neurologist said, I wouldn't do it. She's probably going to die no matter what. I wouldn't do it. I would let my family and myself be with her through this process. And he's like, okay, well, we're not doing it. And my family wasn't there yet. And they actually didn't know until only a few months ago that he had made that decision. I think they thought when I got there, they said, no, she's not a candidate because there's too much damage. But Mike made the decision not to, and 100% I would have died if I had the brain surgery. And so I don't remember anything until a couple of days after. I was completely unconscious. I was in the ICU. My family, again, it was still COVID, and so one person at a time could come and just so happened a huge snowstorm hit so it was nasty and they weren't allowed in the hospital so they spent that first i don't know 12 hours in the parking lot coming one at a time and it was horrible for them but each of them except i think one got to come in and see me and miraculously i didn't die in that first 24 hours and so they moved me from the icu the next day, I moved to the neuro ICU, which is a different ICU for brain injury. And I still didn't die. And I woke up, I want to say 
on the 25th Christmas Day, which is my jam. I'm Christmas crazy. And I was paralyzed completely, still without a shadow of movement on my right side. I couldn't talk. I could still say Michelle, my sister's name, and a swear word. And my kids got me a teddy bear and I named it the F word because I couldn't say anything else. I still call it that. And so we spent Christmas Day. My family, a bunch of them went home Christmas Eve to spend Christmas morning with their family. And that the first night they stayed in hotels. And then on Christmas Day, the neurologist came on his rounds and it just so happened my kids and my husband were in the room and he said, you know, the speech center in your brain is on the left side, which she now doesn't have. But singing and swearing is on the right side. So you should try to sing with her. She might be able to. And they're like, okay. And so we actually have video of Christmas Day singing Rudolph of the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. And I could sing very crappily and not wonderfully. And I did get tired by the end, but it gave so much hope to my family that not all was lost. Because up till that point, I was just so scared. And I, it's very hard to like be locked in your body and not be able to communicate or tell people that it's going to be okay. And the other gift and a curse, I think, that came when I woke up is I was always gifted. I was already a psychic medium, an empath, a medical intuitive and a healer. And, but I had good boundaries with my gifts. And when I woke up, those boundaries were gone. And all of a sudden, I could hear everything everyone was thinking. And so at first I was super confused because I was in like the neuro ICU. So there's a nurse's station that faces all the beds so that they can keep eyes on you. And people were like coming, it felt like coming into my room, like nurses and, you know, walking up to me and saying, oh my gosh, I how like you have young kids. I just can't even, I feel so bad for you. And I'm like, why are you saying that? Like, that's not helpful to me to hear that, like that pity and that just despair that it's Christmas. And, and it took me a while to realize they weren't saying it. They were coming into my room, seeing a 40 year old mother on Christmas and thinking, oh my gosh, this poor woman. I like, I can't imagine how she's feeling and her family is feeling. And so it took me a couple of days to realize that I could hear everything everyone was thinking. And I'm better now, I can control it a little bit better, but then it was very, very overwhelming because the first thing people think when they see you is pity. They feel so bad and I didn't want everybody to feel super bad for me. And so over the next couple of days, and, and the neurologists and the doctors all said, you know, like this is her, this is gonna be her life. She's gonna need continuous care. I had a catheter, I couldn't eat. I was being fed through my nose, down a tube, and it was horrible. I couldn't walk, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't turn over to get not, not get bed sores. And they, they were very realistic that 
I'll probably be in the hospital for a long time, try to get some rehab or move me to a rehab facility to try to get something, but more than likely this is gonna be her forever. And then hour after hour, I started stalking them. And on, I think, December 27th, maybe, I walked for the first time, walked to the bathroom. I started on the day after, so the 26th, I think, I started moving. Just like, I can't remember if it was fingers or toes at first. And then all of a sudden I could move, it was my toes. I could move my whole leg and lift it up. And then I think I sent a video on on the 26th or 27th of moving my leg and then being able, I still couldn't lift my arm, like the hand, but I could do this. And then it would just fall because I had no strength. And it just leaps and bounds magically I started getting better and the doctor would come and be like, what? I don't understand. And nobody could understand. They're like, there is no way that with that amount of brain damage, she would recover. Like that's just not possible. And the, my neurologist to this day says, like, I, I've never seen somebody like you. That type of stroke makes people vegetables for the rest of their lives. And I do have a lot of deficits, but I magically just started getting better. I had severe aphasia, dysphagia, apraxia, everything. I could not talk. And I slowly started learning words. I still said my sister's name all the time. It got so frustrating. Everything was Michelle. But we started working on it in the hospital and slowly I started talking. I sounded like a robot. I didn't have any inflection in my voice. It didn't go up or down, it just stayed flat. But everything slowly started getting better and I started walking all around. And it was COVID, so I was like locked in the ward. So at first with a walker, I used a walker, I wanna say for three days. And I was there for two weeks in the ICU and I was walking constantly. I started eating slowly. I still struggle with that. I've lost a lot of weight, but I just started getting better all the time. Then started testing. How the heck did she have a stroke? What's wrong with her? Usually it's because at my age, either or lifestyle choices, but a small hole in your heart, I don't have any of that. And so I stayed in the hospital until they could get me into a heart test for that defect. It was probably four days longer than I needed to be there. And then I went home and it was horrible. <laughs> Everything was horrible. I was on a high from the other side for the first probably almost 10 days. It stuck with me, the joy and the comfort and the faith of just knowing that there's so many souls that are invested in caring for me. And I really was on a bit of a high. I still had some complications. I had some really bad headaches afterwards and stuff like that. Even, this is probably kind of morbid, but again, our old dog, we had planned to put down after Christmas. Unfortunately, we weren't there. So my friend had to because she went into a health crisis. And so my husband came into my room and he looked horrible. And automatically I think, oh my gosh, is my dad dead? Cause he's in his eighties. And he comes to the bed and he's like, 
I don't want to upset you, but I, I feel like I have to tell you this. Molly had to be put down this morning, which is our dog. And I, I, I smiled. I'm like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> it's okay. That's fine. Don't worry. Because he was crying. And I'm like, it's fine. Normally, I would not react like that. But I had seen her on the other side. And so obviously, that is why I saw her, because she was going to die. So I felt just so much hope until I didn't. And then everything that they showed me on the other side, I was angry about. I'm like, why? Like, you tell me that all these wonderful things are going to happen. And this is what I come back to. I'm paralyzed. I'm in pain all the time. I can't eat. I struggle still to walk. I barely can talk. Everybody looks at me with pity. I hate everything. And that continued for a while. I also was on a lot of medication and a very strong anti-seizure medication that made me feel horrible. And it actually made me want to go to the other side. Like I, for the first time in my life, I struggled with those types of thoughts, not because I wanted to, but because that can be a side effect of the medication. And they tried to switch to another one and I got too sick. So. I had to struggle with that for the first six months being on this medication that caused me complete despair. And same with rehab was hard. Everything was hard. And then I started having little mini strokes, which is totally normal when you've had a massive stroke because the brain tissue sloughs off and can cause little blood clots. And I got sick multiple times. And then I got COVID for the first time and I almost died. And then I got COVID pneumonia. And so it was just struggle after struggle. They took my license because I had a seizure. And so I couldn't drive. I had no independence. I couldn't be alone. I struggled to walk and sleep, just everything. And for the first six to eight months, I thought I had made a mistake. The bright, shiny, wonderfulness of the other side wears off a little bit. And I got very immersed in my human feelings and my human feelings of inadequacy. And how have I stuck my kids with this mom who can't do all the things I used to do? I couldn't remember things like my recipes and I never wrote them down. I couldn't be there for so many things because everything was a sensory nightmare. I have a sound processing disorder, so I have a hard time now listening to people and being in areas with loud noise. And I just was so weak and it just took everything in me to stay here. And in the first couple of months, I asked them to take me back because I just didn't think I could do all the things. Like, how would I ever speak to people about my experiences if I can barely talk? How will I write a book when I can't read? I couldn't read. I couldn't retain. I couldn't understand anything I read. I have retrograde amnesia. So the two years before the stroke, I don't really remember. And then the two years before that is really patchy. So I couldn't even remember just day-to-day -day things of those years. And I struggle still with short-term memory issues, long-term memory issues, so many things that like how I can't even shake somebody's hand because I have no feeling on the right side of my body sensory at all. I can move it, but I can't feel it. So 
I don't know where it is. So I can't shake somebody's hand because it's extremely painful as well because my nerves, most of them still work. I just don't have sensory. And I'm like, either I was dreaming or somebody's punking me because how in the world am I gonna do any of the things they showed me when I barely can exist? And even though I felt like that, every doctor's appointment, every time I saw a medical professional, they were like, they use the word miracle because they have never seen somebody like me. They've never seen somebody with a completed MCA2 ischemic stroke that is back to living almost how they were before that. I am missing so much of my brain and somehow I can do all of the things that only that part of my brain does. And so my neurologist, 30 years being a neurologist and even this last appointment, he's like, I just, I don't understand how. When I went for an appointment, I think six months after the stroke, after the appointment, he said, can you just wait here? Because I want to bring some of the stroke nurses up because you really affected them because you're the same age as them. And they carried what happened to you with them and still think about you all the time. And I want them to see you walk. And so I waited and they came and I walked up and down the hall and they just didn't understand. It's There's no other way to explain that it's a miracle because I shouldn't be here and I shouldn't be able to do this. And once I kind of started getting, I think to the fall, so 10 months-ish after the stroke, I started thinking, maybe I can do this. Like it's actually not that awful. And then things started falling into place. All of the things they said I would do started happening. And magically, people would help me with it. So uh, they had said I would write a book. And a woman who worked in a publishing house contacted me to do work on the side for free to help me write a book because I can't type at all, again, because I have only one hand. And I can't transcribe or talk like to text because I have such a hard time organizing my words. And in a matter of, I think, 10 weeks, we wrote an entire book of my entire story. And it is now ready for the editor to start in June. I did it in June because that's 18 months, June 23rd. So she actually starts on June 23rd. People started coming out of who knows where to ask me to come and speak. Just so many things are being put into place and it's exactly what they said would happen. My recovery and everything that happened is a miracle, but I do still struggle with deficits all of the time. I have issues. I My entire to eat is very hard. Um, I can't make a ball of food in my mouth. A lot of stuff that your brain tells you to do, I can't do. Again, I can't feel my right side, so I get tired. I still struggle with speech sometimes. But when I was in the hospital, I started doing live videos and I continued to do live videos through the ups and downs because some days I hated the entire world. And I would tell people that, you know, like it's not all rainbows and sunshine when you have a horrible traumatic brain injury. Even when I had the wonderful gift of going to the other side and being able to make this choice and have a miraculous recovery, sometimes I still wanted to say, 
F the entire world. I hate it and I don't like it and I'm not doing this anymore. And so I documented my entire recovery and it spoke to people. And even recently, about a month ago, my guides once again were like, because they kind of knock on the door and be like, hey, you need to do this. Um, they said, you need to paint. I'm like, what? I've never painted in my life and I have a major brain injury. I'm not going to paint. And they're like, yes, you need to get watercolors and you need to paint the other side. You need to paint the flowers because there's colors that don't exist here. You need to paint that. You need to paint the things you saw. And I'm like, I'm already writing a book. Like, what more do you want? But I was like, okay, I ignored them for four or five days. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? I asked my son, because I know he has a lot of art stuff. I'm like, do you have any watercolors? And he had some super cheap ones. And I'm like, I'm going to try it because they say I have to and I'll do it. And then I will suck and then I won't have to do it anymore. And I don't know how or why, but I started painting. And that was three and a half weeks ago. And I haven't stopped. I have a stack beside me of paintings. And I try to paint the other side. I try to paint what I saw. And I don't know how or why, or they didn't talk about this part of it on the other side, but I'm calling it my flowers from heaven. And I just want to paint all day. I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything else. I just want to paint. I'm back at work. I'm back doing groups. I'm back doing things like this. And everything is lining up exactly how they said, exactly what they showed me. So every once in a while, I get doubts like, what do you mean I'm going to speak to like the leaders of the world about how, pardon my French, not to be assholes, because we really are. We are very selfish in order to survive and take care of ourselves. We have become very selfish and lacking empathy and I think now that I do have complete faith that that is what's going to happen. If I can write a book in 10 weeks, I think, yeah, I probably can speak to tons of people, even with speech deficits. So I don't know. I Going to the other side, I would like to say that that was the most exciting time in my life because I've never felt more peaceful or more wonderful or more grounded or more, I don't know, belonging. But I think the rest of my life might rival that. I do hope I don't have another stroke. You know, my five-year survival rate after the type of strokes I had is less than 25%, I think less than 20. Some studies say less than 14. But I have proven doctors wrong non-stop since I had the stroke and I think I'm going to continue to do that because I know that all of the things they said will happen are going to happen. So for me, I just want to let people know that we get to choose. We get to choose what we learn and we come here to learn. On the other side, everything is love. There is nothing else. So in my view and what I've seen, there's no hell, there's no punishment, there's no judgment. 
So the only thing that happens there is love. We come here to experience everything else. So the reason we're here is to learn and learning is hard. And some days we just want to give up. I call them my toddler temper tantrum moments, you know, where I'm like, this is too hard. Like who in their right mind would ever choose this life? But it's not you as a human that's choosing it. So people get confused there. They think, you know, why would a child ever choose to be abused? Why would I, would anyone be like, choose to be in a massive tragedy or something like that? Your human self doesn't choose. That's chosen before you come here. And we get to choose exactly how we learn and how we experience our lives. And sometimes we sail through it. And other times it is so hard to just get a handle on what's going on in your life at any given moment. I think people need to now focus on what they're learning in that moment. If you're struggling with something that's going on in your life, think or concentrate on what are you supposed to be learning right now? If it's hard, the lessons must be huge. So if you can identify those lessons, so for me, a lot of the time it's patience. I am not a patient person. That is my theme for this life. And it doesn't mean I'm going to live my life and master patience at all. I'm going to live my life and I am going to be presented with infinite opportunities to practice patience with myself, with others, with life, with this world. And sometimes I will be very successful and other times I will feel like I'm failing because I have to learn or look at all different views of what it means to practice patience. So if you can identify the lessons, identify what you're learning, your higher self and your guides will stop throwing it at you so much. And let me tell you, the year after the stroke, I'm at, I think, 15 months now. So the year after, my guides and my higher self, it was like target practice of crap. They hucked everything at me again because they said, I need to learn a lifetime worth of lessons in 18 months. They didn't mince words. It was going to be super hard and you're going to want to quit, which I did multiple times. I wanted to quit. And even still, some days are wonderful and I feel great. Other days I'm like, what the hell did I do? Why did I make this choice? And it's still every day I'm still learning the people who don't realize or don't think that we're here to learn. Unfortunately, usually have much easier lives, but the learning and where we focus that learning is what makes us move forward. So it's not punishment. It's not God or your guides on the other side saying, oh, ha, here you go. Have this. You suck. Have fun trying to walk through that. No, it's your guides and God and everyone you love saying, we know you are strong enough to walk through this life. We're going to walk beside you as you learn these lessons. If you ignore the lessons, they'll keep throwing them at you. So try to focus on what the lessons are. That's why we're here. We are here to learn. We are.